Our first scripture reading is from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. It's page 630 in your blue Bible. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. It is a foretelling of God's world rescue operation when nations and Judah and Israel will all come together to worship Yahweh, to worship the Lord. And in that time, he will give shepherds after his own heart. So verse chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. The Lord says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of Yahweh, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, it shall not be made again. At that time, at the time when the ark is no longer remembered and no copies of it are being remade, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. And now we turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1. Verses 1 and 2, it's page 1018. For those of you who are visiting, we've been doing a series through 1 Peter, and we're moving right into 2 Peter, and the series is called Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. So today we begin with 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant of Apostle Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. What I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has gifted us with faith and equal standing, equip us with grace and peace for the days of the trials ahead. Amen. You may be seated. But do keep your Bibles open there to 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. There are notes on the back of the worship guide and outlined there with lots of space to write notes. So before things get tough, like at the beginning of a big game between rivals or before a serious battle, a good leader will remind their team or their troops of what they ha already have. I can give you several examples because I've been on a Civil War kick in my readings recently. I can give you several examples from Robert E. Lee and from Ulysses S. Grant. But let me get a little closer to home. In junior high, which is now called middle school, but in the day, it was in junior high, while I was on the football team at Moore West Junior High, which no longer exists as a junior high, I remember one coach who really worked hard to explain life lessons drawn from football training and football games. I don't know why, I think he thinks he was, he thought he was a preacher. I'm sure he's a Christian. 
but it would be at the end of a practice or something like that, and he would take all these pimply-faced adolescents who were just weird. We were all weird, right? And he would gather us together, and he would start preaching life lessons to us drawn out of football, the practice or a game. One time, as we were practicing and getting ready for our big game with those rivals on the other side of town, more central junior high, that's where Anna went to school, by the way. The coach responded to all of our whinings and grumblings about how big that other team was and how many games they had won and all that stuff. And so, at the end of practice, he called us all together, sweaty, smelly, dirty, grime everywhere, grass stains on our jerseys at the end of practice. And he pointed out to us what we had. He pointed out how we had gained new skills over the last season how we had become a much better team than we used to be when we first started, or even from the year before. How we had, had, uh, had, we had grown as a team, and so forth. He came and told us, reminded us of the things that we had before we got into that big Bible game. He chose to focus, and to have us focus on what we had, rather than what the other team had. No, I don't believe that we won the game, actually, so it wasn't that kind of a deal. But we gave them a run for their money. And it was an important lesson. I've never forgotten the things that he said a couple of times like that, his life lessons. Well, Peter does something like that here in this letter in the first two verses of chapter 1. Before he gets into the deep thick of it, which is going to be all about the troublesome people trying to pervert the church from within. Before Peter gets there, he's going to start right here. Here's what you have. So therefore, he explains how they have been gifted and equaled, and they have been granted and equipped. G-E-G-E. If that helps you to memorize it, I mean, I worked that. Okay, so there's the four points. Before we get into those things, though, again, Peter, notice, does not announce specifically who the intended audience is, like he did over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you know, to the, to the elect exiles in Bithynia, Asia, Cappadocia, etc. He doesn't do that here. It's not until you get to verse 1 of chapter 3 that you find out that these people had received a first letter from him. Here's how chapter 3, verse 1 says it. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, it's always possible that this was a different group of readers he's writing 2 Peter to um, than the one that he wrote 1 Peter to, and that the first letter he sent them no longer exists or whatever. That's possible, but it seems clear to me that this is the same body of people of Christians that he wrote 1 Peter to. Further, there's a thematic, a thematic connection, a thematic connection between the two letters, and it's this. 1 Peter is concerned with the pressures from outside the church, pressures from outside the church, the majority culture pressing hard in upon us, speaking of us as evildoers while we do good, maligning us, mistreating while we're just doing what we're supposed to, and so forth. Pressures from outside the church. But Second Peter goes to the other side and is concerned about the perversions 
that were beginning to crop up inside the church. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 7 is going to be all about that. The perversions inside the church. And so these two letters definitely belong side by side. And so then we move forward, beginning with Peter's reminder that we've been gifted. And it's the first, not the first sentence, but the first statement in the second sentence of verse 1. As Peter introduces his second letter, he greets his listeners as recipients, as those who have obtained a faith. Now, obtained sounds like a very proactive word, right? So Ken goes out and he obtains food for a good dish he's going to be making up soon, right? Sounds like a proactive word. Unfortunately, it's not a proactive word in the Greek. It's a very passive word. If you're using the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and if you're using the New King James Version, look at the footnote, and all of them say that this word is received, who have received a faith. In fact, the Roman Catholic grammatical volume, which I use all the time, called a grammatical analysis of the Greek New Testament, says the Greek word means received to those who have received a faith. Now, why is this important? My friends, Peter is pointing out to these believers and to you and I that faith is a gift, not a feat. Faith is a gift. It's not a feat. We do not stir up faith in Christ to be saved by drinking some five-hour five-hour power drink of some kind. Right? We don't stir it up in ourselves. The reality is, as Paul puts it in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Now wait, preacher. I know my neighbors next door. They're seeking God. Now they need to go somewhere else, but they're seeking God. The reality is, none of us seeks God as He is. We seek a God of our own making. We seek a God of our own reflection. None of us wants to seek the God of justice and mercy as He is. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. All together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Faith is not a feat. It's a gift. Without the work of God on us, without the work of the Spirit of God in us, without the work of the Son of God for us, we would never believe. And so Paul will write in another place, and you heard it because it was the assurance of pardon. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Well, what's the gift of God? Salvation, grace, faith, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You probably have run across those who like to boast about their faith. They think it's their accomplishment and they will be proud to tell you about the strength of their faith. When you realize that faith is not a feat of gift, there ain't a no room for a boasting. It's a gift, not a feat. And that's where Peter begins this. The original audience was gifted with faith, and so are you, and so are I, so am I. 
My friend, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, was raised for your justification, you have been given the gift of faith that has been bestowed upon you. That's why when you've come to me, a few of you have come to me and said, I don't know if I'm one of God's elect. And the first question out of my mouth is always, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And you always say to me, well, yeah. Well, glory to God in the highest. I ain't got no worries and neither should you. You couldn't have even believed if God had not given you the gift. Gifted. Gifted. So, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the gift of faith God bestowed upon you. It's not your feet. It's but we are also, and he tells them they were also equal. It's the next statement in that sentence in verse 1. To those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours. To those who received a faith of equal standing Without. Now, most of you know that the New Testament is written in Greek. I've already referred to the Greek, right? So the Greek word behind equal standing carries the idea of citizenship, of equality of privilege. For example, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote towards the end of the first century and into the second century about the history of the Jews, their wars, and all those other things, he uses this word as he is describing how the foreign-born Jews that moved to Antioch had been given equal standing with the Greeks and the Macedonians born in Antioch. Did you hear that? They'd been given equal standing with the home-born, with the citizens. They, it has a lot to do with citizenship and equality of privilege. Therefore, notice that Peter is telling these Christians that they are equal. Received a faith of equal standing with ours. You're equal. You're equal before God because of Jesus Christ. You have the same equal standing before God as even Peter and the apostles, the rest of the apostles do. A faith of equal standing with ours, Peter said. Equal. Brothers and sisters, this is the point that Paul was making over in Ephesians 2 that we read before our confession of sin. When Paul was talking to the non-Jewish Christians and the Jewish Christians. By the way, so the non-Jewish Christians and the Jewish Christians could be very snooty. right? They look down their noses at each other because their cultures look down their noses at each other. The Jews were the best. They were the super race. No, the Greeks were the super race. They always look down their noses at each other. And notice what Paul is saying is he's talking to both groups who are now Christians. Christ is our peace because he has made of these two warring ethnic groups one Canaan anthropon, one new humankind. Paul went on and he says, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, equal, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, equal, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, equal, 
In Christ, we are equal. In Christ, we have equal standing and equal privileges before God. This is why Paul says what he says in Galatians, the scripture that Peter read for our call to worship in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, equal. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, equal. There is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ, equal. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, equal. That doesn't wipe out our sex, male, female, it doesn't wipe out our ethnicity or our cultural background, but we realize there ain't nothing about us that makes us super special with God and not those people over there. Do you get what I'm saying? You don't want to say My friends, the struggles with racism in God's church, with ageism, with ableism, with whatever ism you want to throw in, the remedy, the remedy is not some social construct to try to heal. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's the doctrine of justification. We have all together been put on God's good side by Jesus Christ despite what we deserve. There's the answer. I wrote all about it, by the way, in my book. The chapter is called Imagery and Narrative. I can't get away from it. And that's what Peter's driving at here. Equal. We're equal by Christ. Equally granted faith. Equally saved. Equally children of God. Christ alone. Grace alone. Ah, but we must remember. Equal does not mean egalitarian. Those of you who are in the adult class, your ears just picked up. You know what I'm going to talk about. Equal does not mean egalitarian. Does not mean that we all can just do whatever everybody else does. That there's no distinctions. There are distinctions. Well, preacher, where did you come up with that? Well, just look at verse 1. Notice how Peter begins this letter. Simeon Peter. A servant and a what? Apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes, you have received a faith of equal standing with us, with me, and with the rest of the apostles, but there still are apostles, capital A apostles. Who were the apostles? They were the ones out of all the people Jesus handpicked and said, You will be my voice, my spokesperson to the church and the world. They were expected to be a Heard and listened. Already you know in verse 1, equal does not mean egalitarian. There are roles of responsibility. Just making a point here. So, equal does not mean egalitarian, but we are equal. Dear friends, brothers, and sisters, Christianity is not a classless, genderless society. It is not a democratic institution. 
I love what James Madison puts in the Federalist Papers when he says democracy means the anarchy or the rule of a mob. 51% vote does not make something right. Jesus never planned on his church being a democracy. He had things set up in a different way. Yes, all are equal before God by the grace of God alone and Christ alone received by faith alone, but all do not have equal authority or will. So they have to carry those responsibilities humbly, In fact, is it interesting that it's Simeon Peter? That's his Hebrew name. I think I remember something about his son. Oh, that's right. He denied Jesus. Oh, that's right. He's not a shining role model all the time. Oh, that's right. Jesus came to him after the resurrection and said, Peter, do you love Responsibilities are not by right. Equal does not mean egalitarian. Dear brothers and sisters, we have been gifted faith of equal standing with one another, which has been granted to us. And this is the last statement in verse 1. To faith of equal standing has been granted to us, one and all, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This righteousness Peter's referring to here has far more to do with divine faithfulness with divine faithfulness than it, the, him being faithful, our God and Savior being faithful to his character, our God and Savior being faithful to his decrees our God and Savior being faithful to his will and rescue operation. This righteousness here has more to do with God's divine faithfulness than it does to imputed righteousness or the act of obedience of Jesus or the substitution for his kingdom. I just mention that because sometimes people will say interesting things about it. But it has to do with God's, our God and Savior's own faithfulness to what he's up to. And so it's the avenue. Notice that by the righteousness of our God and Savior, this is the avenue. This righteousness is the avenue that we, by which we have been granted this gift of faith and the equality of faith by the righteousness of our God. You remember the old E.E. question? Well, you know, if you died tonight, Bubba, and you were standing before God, and he asked you, why should I let you my heaven, what would you say? Here's your answer. I've been gifted faith and equal standing with all the rest of the saints, given to me by the righteousness, the goodness, the faithfulness of our God and Savior. There's your answer. It's the only way. Secondly, I want you to notice what Peter calls our Lord, our God and Savior, whom? Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but your bells should be a ringing in your head. The divinity of our Lord Jesus coupled together with his humanity, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Divinity, humanity. 
The divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, coupled with his humanity, is what makes his righteous grant to us a secure and firm grant. It has nothing to do with the quality of my faith. It's the quality of the one in whom I have faith. That divinity and humanity of our Lord coupled together is what makes this righteous grant secure and firm. Just, just kind of quickly surveying 2 Peter, our great God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 9, has cleansed us from our sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, our God and Savior Jesus Christ has bought us. Uh, our God and Savior has given us escape from the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire, chapter 1, verse 4. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ has given us an escape from the defilements of the world, chapter 2, verse 20. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ rescues the godly from trials and keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this God and Savior is the historical man, Jesus. Our God and Savior, Jesus. We know when he existed. We know who the political parties were in power at the time. We know people around him. We've got all kinds of... The historical man, Jesus, is our God and Savior. And he is also the longed-for Messiah, the Hebrew Scriptures, Christ. He has. He has, by his righteousness, granted to us this gift of faith and equal state. But we are also equipped. And it's verse 2. We are also equipped. Here in verse 2, Peter turns uh, an old way of writing letters in Greece and, and Rome. He turns it into a Christianized form. May grace and peace multiply to you, God, Jesus our Lord. Christianized. And we hear these greetings and we're tempted to think that it's just a throwaway line because when we send letter greetings, we're using throwaway lines. We think Peter must be using throwaway lines, right? I mean, you know what a throwaway line is, right? So you walk up to, uh, you walk up to, uh, oh, I won't put anybody, sorry. So you walk up to Mike Silver and you say, Mike, how you doing? And what's the throwaway line? I'm doing great. Why you got a bandage on your arm? You've been amputated. Why you got an eyeball? You know what saying? We say that it's a throwaway line. First Peter, Second Peter, one two is not a throwaway. First off, notice it's a prayer. What's the very first word of verse two? May. May. Right. A benediction is a declaration. So I give the benediction later today. The Lord bless you and keep you, etc. That's a declaration. May is a petition word. May, please, Lord. That's what it is. This is a prayer. Secondly, notice it is a prayer of substance. May grace and peace be multiplied. Grace, the grace that Peter's going to talk about in this letter. Peace, the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ and thus we can have with one another. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Poured into your cup until your cup is burbling over. May be multiplied to you. It's a prayer of substance. But notice also, it is not only just a prayer and a prayer of substance, it's a prayer um, that summarizes one of the major themes of this letter. The grace and peace multiplied to you in the knowledge, the 
knowledge of our God and Jesus our Lord. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's the, probably one of the biggest themes in Second Knowledge. The Greek word used here is epigenosis. It's gnosis and epigenosis all the way through this letter. But knowledge? By the way, did anybody read my letter this week? Yes, thank you. Give them a cookie. I put it in there for you to work on. I think this is important. It's the word knowledge, the word reminding, the word recalling, the word remembering, and the one time Peter says, pay attention, all course through Second Peter. It's the vein, the major artery of this letter from one end to the other. It's in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 13, verse 15, verse 19. It's in chapter 2, verse 20. It's in chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 18. Must be a major theme. So this knowledge is not, and we're good Presbyterians, we hear the word knowledge, we perk up, right? Ah, good, it's going to be a theological tone. Right? We want to, things like that. This knowledge is not just data and factoids, though it does it. It's about data and details and facts and verifications about God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus, and from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's far more than just facts and data and details. You've got to have those. But it's more than that. This knowledge is more than that. It's a knowledge that one grows in, usually through experiences with a person. Let me give you an illustration. You know, when we got married at 18, did y'all know that? I knew everything that really needed to be known about him. All she had to do is come ask. Forty-two years later, one thing I know and I don't know is I don't know everything there is to know about him. And I know her well enough to realize who she really is. And all the joy of that and the growth in that, we have so much fun together, picking on each other. But we grow and grown in that knowledge, and it's all based on facts and data and history, but it's a personal, relational knowledge. That's what Peter is talking about. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in this growing personal knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And you know that because when you get to the end of first, Second Peter, when you get to the end of Second Peter, that's where he ends. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, it's a personal aspect of growing in this relationship knowledge with Him. But further, notice that it is an equipping knowledge. May peace and grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our of God and of, of, our, of Jesus our Lord. There's an equipping aspect of this knowledge. Peter will declare it down in verse 3, and we'll talk about, pick up at verse 3 next week, but there, I just want you to look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. It's an equipping knowledge. Therefore, my friends, to know this God and to know our Lord Jesus is where we go to get equipped with grace and peace. 
It's where we go to get equipped with grace and peace. That's why Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Next word. In the knowledge of God. It's the place you go to get equipped. Once when I was in Turkey, I was on a special team in Turkey and we got, we're getting shipped out to places unknown. They told us where it was, they'd have to kill us or something like that. But we were getting shipped out, and it was like, a, I mean, it was like we were, that night we were going somewhere. So I was in Turkey on a special team, we got called up, being shipped out to places unknown, which by the way ended up being Germany of all places. And it was September in Turkey, which is almost like September in Oklahoma. Hot, humid, sweaty. But here we were, lining up in front of the quartermaster hut. And there was this table, and he was handing us out right there at the supply room. He's handing out to us, as we filed past him, he's handing out to us cold weather liners for our field jackets. We're sweating at this point, right? So, what? And he was handing out to us wet weather gear. I mean, it's September in Turkey. It didn't rain for weeks. Well, he gave us, he equipped us with everything we needed to survive the wetter, colder conditions. Good for us. Because we landed in Germany and we landed in the midst of a freezing, drizzling rain. It was like 20s to 30s the whole time. For 10 whole days, tromping around in the fields in slimy mud, sleeping in the mud, trudging through the forest, sliding through farmers' fields, up to our eyeballs in mud and freezing cold, but we were equipped. Now those poor souls, Manella's Herbert, They weren't equipped. And they came unprepared, and many of them were dropping out like flies with my thermos being taken off. In a sense, my friends, the knowledge of our God and Jesus our Lord is the supply room, if you will, is the very quartermaster who equips us for the storms and the squalls of life, and he equips us with just what we need. Grace and peace. Go to your quiet. Well, dear friends, give thanks. Give thanks for the gift of faith. And today, as we're taking communion in this week, and then afterwards when we're walking out the door, I want you to turn to your neighbors, not just your spouse, but do turn to not just your kids, but you turn and turn to those who are behind you, in front of you, and across the aisle, and rejoice that by the good grace of God, you and they have been equipped with equal standing, or been given equal standing before God, despite what we deserve. Yes, that person too could give equal. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, look up and joy that this has all been granted to you the righteousness of our God and Savior. And so, with Him, get equipped with grace. Memory matters and endings for God's mind. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, a grace and peace.
life to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord.